Analyx 2.21. A person asked regarding Confucius, why is Confucius not employed in governing? The master said, the book of documents said, shall, shall. Just by being shall filial to your parents and befriending your brothers carries out the work of governing. Thus, in doing this, I am already employed in governing. So why must I be employed in governing? This one is a little hard to translate. So if you look at different translations of this, you'll find something that's a little different. But the meaning is essentially the same. What Confucius is saying is to this person asking, well, Confucius, if he is so great, why is he not already put into this position of governing? And you might ask, some people might ask this these days who are a bit naive about how politics work. Well, if this person is such, such a great person, why isn't he elected yet? And we have a kind of a, a similar naivety here. Um, if Confucius is so great, then why hasn't any lord already put him into a position? And this, of course, ignores certain realities. For example, if your, if the people who, who elect or if the people who uh, choose, whether we're talking about the people in the democracy or the king in the monarchy, if those people are not very good to begin with, they're not going to recognize virtue and wisdom. And uh, that's unfortunate. If that's not their priority, uh, if they're worried about something else more, then they're not going to choose this kind of person or if they are simply ignorant. And uh, if you don't have the, your monarchy set up correctly, or if at one point in the past it did work, but because um, because of how history has unraveled, uh, the, the country also as a whole has unraveled for whatever reason, you have a situation where the king is ignorant, he is not going to be able to recognize wisdom. If the king is a petty person and doesn't have virtuous intentions, then he's also going to ignore the virtuous people. If the king is surrounded at court and was raised by these people to become petty and foolish, then that's simply the kind of monarch you have. Uh, this kind of issue uh, was institutionally solved, or at least an attempt at it was um, was done throughout the last approximately 2,000 years over uh, many centuries. But any legitimate monarchy is going to have a certain curriculum for the crown prince and perhaps the other princes to be educated from. So by the time we have, say, the Song Dynasty, um, we are going to see that there is a well-defined curriculum of texts that the crown prince is supposed to study. So this ranges anything from the book of documents here, which Confucius quotes, uh, which is essentially a book of history with some commentary in it, uh, to the book of poetry, the book of ritual. So we have this literature. We also have now by the uh, Song Dynasty, certainly, but even the Han Dynasty, Tang Dynasty, you have these philosophical texts that are also studied as well. So after Confucius, we have the Qin dynasty, that's not a Confucian dynasty, but once we have the Han dynasty and onwards, every monarch is a student of Confucius indirectly. So we no longer have uh, the situation that Confucius faced where there is almost nobody of great wisdom and virtue available 
to be chosen. Uh, excuse me, there's nobody who is, um, there's not the situation where we have greatly virtuous people and there's uh, no selection of them. So every dynasty um, after the Qin dynasty does employ worthy people. Now, does that always happen? Uh, is it the most worthy people in those societies that are chosen? Uh, no, it doesn't work that perfectly, um, especially when we're looking at the, towards the end of the dynasty, we have, of course, with any human community, we have some problems that start to pile up. And so we don't have a complete perfection. However, we don't also have a situation uh, similar to what Confucius went to went through, wherein there is simply there is simply no appointment whatsoever of virtuous and wise persons. So, in other words, this is a system that is pretty good at finding wise and virtuous people and putting them into high positions. It doesn't work perfectly all the time, of course, with any system, but it gives a very good chance of doing this. I would also ask the question, is there really a better system? And if you can figure this out, then please let everybody else know. So Confucius is living during a time of darkness morally speaking, and he is not being chosen here. And uh, furthermore, it is towards the end of the Zhou Dynasty. The Zhou Dynasty does not have too much time left uh, by, the, by the time Confucius is living. So we are something around the last 20% uh, or less of that dynasty. And um, in, in one sense, the dynasty has already, uh, in a sense, collapsed. It's there in name only. Uh, what I'm saying is probably more accurate with the years that Shunzi is alive, actually. Uh, I'm getting my dates a little bit mixed up here. Um, so Confucius, um, is living in a time where there's approximately something like 400 years left uh, until the Qin Dynasty formally uh, and, and very clearly replaces the Zhou Dynasty. But the Qin Dynasty is able to conquer its neighbors without the Zhou Emperor doing anything because by that point, by this point, the Zhou Emperor has so very little uh, authority remaining. So this is the historical situation here. There's another reason why a person who is wise and virtuous, such as Confucius, might not participate in government, and it's because he already knows what the end result will be. Confucius, um, depends on which historian you ask and uh, which modern historian today considers to be accurate from the sources from the past. Uh, so for example, Sima Chan has uh, some interesting details, but other historians today, they might look at Sima Chan's work and say, well, this, this is unlikely to have really been the case. Um, but anyways, I would just want to leave it out there um, and let you know that there's always some sort of dispute. Um, history is not clear. It is not indisputable. There is some um, ambiguity as to what really happened and exactly when. But most uh, sources seem to indicate that uh, Confucius was a minister, but not a high-ranking one. So he was never a prime minister. Uh, he may have been some sort of mid-level or lower uh, position. And he was that for a fairly short period of time. And he 
um, is no longer in that position after some time. And sometimes, uh, sometimes this could mean that uh, you know a person is pushed out of the position, and sometimes they mean they simply leave the position because they know they cannot accomplish that much. We do know of Confucius that he did travel attempting to seek a position as a high-ranking minister, um, probably prime minister, for one of these kingdoms within the larger empire, uh, within the Zhou dynasty. And he is uh, traveling uh, from one kingdom to the other in order to uh, seek audience with the local king, the duke, um, however, he translates that term, and he is there uh, willing to be employed in governing. And so we have um, the situation, perhaps Confucius has um, left his home state, his home kingdom of Lu, because he knows what the politics are like there. He knows that there are these three aristocratic families that are becoming more and more bold and not giving the king his due. And so the, the government structure or the government power dynamics are in chaos. They are not what they are supposed to be. Confucius sees what's going on and he doesn't believe that it's worth staying to be appointed because perhaps he'll never be appointed, or even if he does be, become appointed, he won't be able to make meaningful and lasting change. So Confucius, he's not, for whatever reasons, he is not participating in government or employed in governing. So people are asking questions. Well, if he's so great, why isn't he, um, why isn't he employed in governing? And we have some similar um, problems today. People are more likely to say something along the lines of, well, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? If you are so hardworking, why are you so poor? Uh, people simply seek to blame the person rather than the circumstances. People blame the individual rather than thinking, is the society around him fair? So Confucius has an interesting response. He is saying, after quoting this part from the Book of Documents, he is saying, what I am doing is already carrying out the work of governing. And so why must I be officially employed in governing? In other words, why does he need the position and the salary that accompanies, with, uh, accompanies it? So once you realize that having this official position does not necessarily give you the best results, this answer makes more sense. And it's not simply Confucius being facetious or playing word games here. It's important to understand that the role of governing is indeed to rectify relations with the family and also to cultivate the people towards virtue. That is essentially the role of governing. And you can think about this uh, from the standpoint that government does not really produce much in terms of economics, in terms of economic productivity. So it's the farmers who grow the food out of the land. The government does not do such a thing. It's the craftsmen, the factory workers, the engineers who produce and invent tools and other things of use, such as chairs and beds and so forth. Government doesn't produce that directly. And government 
what it can do uh, is to ensure that these people are able to do these things. So some of the most obvious ways, of course, is to ensure some sort of uh, peace. So you're protecting the borders from people who might want to come in and do whatever they want there. And I phrase it that way because uh, you don't always, um, the problem isn't always some sort of invading army. The problem could simply be people coming in and doing what they want, but that disrupts the peace and harmony um, of that state. And an invading army is only one form of that. So protecting the borders is a legitimate function of governing such that um, the people who are um, good can come in and the people who aren't, you either keep them out or you find a way to uh, educate them morally. But you wouldn't simply allow whoever to come in and do whatever they want. So you have, um, you have this sort of protecting borders uh, thing here, but there's more, of course, that a government can do. And another, another kind of very practical thing that can be done is to build and maintain roads. In other words, public works, uh, things that would be very difficult for persons on their own or um, merchants, uh, businessmen on their own to achieve. Uh, that can also be also be done. But is it, are the Confucians like libertarians and that's all they believe in? Some, some very basic physical and very practical matters? No, that's not all uh, that government is actually responsible for. And if you think about it, what they could, what all of these things could be summarized up as is to ensure that the people become virtuous and harmonious because harmony already includes peace. Peace is when there's a lack of violence and harmony is when people work together and they get along happily. That's harmony. Harmony is much greater than simple peace. Because harmony goes far beyond a simple lack of violence. And so government is responsible for encouraging people to be virtuous. And part of that virtue, if we're talking about the common people, is to be good at whatever they are doing. And so we're not only talking about um, being good human beings as individuals, but also having good families. And also, if you are a farmer, be a good farmer. If you are a merchant, be, a, be an honest merchant. If you are a craftsman, then produce good um, uh, products. So that's also part of virtue. So Shunzi will say in one of those chapters, uh, he's written that the you know he'll talk about the virtue of people in different roles. So the virtue of the common people, part of their virtue is to be honest, to do honest work, to not cheat other people. If they are going to make a chair, they're going to make a good chair. If they're going to make a good bed, they're going to make a good bed. They're not going to try to rip somebody off by giving a average price, but it's very the product is very shoddy, or to give a very average product, but sell it at too high of a price. So uh, people have their basic honesty in their dealings with other people. So if we come back to here, um, we'll come back to what Confucius says. Xiao Xiao, this, this is what he quotes from the Book of Documents, Xiao Xiao, just by being filial to your parents, and by befriending your brothers, this carries out the work of governing. Because one of the things that governments are responsible is to make their people virtuous. 
And part of human beings being virtuous is to be good family persons. And therefore, if you connect this all together, one of the primary duties of government is to rectify relations within the family and allow family relations to flourish. And so later on, we'll see that Confucius, when he is providing advice, this is all the way in book, book 12, but when he is providing advice to the king of Qi, this is a different state than where he's from, Lu, he recommends that the Lord fulfills his role as a Lord, the ministers, minister, in other words, fulfill their role as ministers properly. The fathers fulfill their roles as fathers, and the sons fulfill their roles as sons. And he doesn't only mean physical actions, but also that their heart is in the right place, that the feelings from father to son are the right feelings, and from son to father are also the right feelings. So, when Confucius is saying that he, by being a good son to his father, a good nephew to his uncles, a good older brother to his younger brothers, a good uncle to his nieces and nephews, a good father to his son and daughters, a good husband to his wife, by doing this, he is, within his sphere of influence, actually literally carrying on the purposes of proper government. Furthermore, this also works by setting an example for others. So, nothing is more encouraging than seeing somebody and he has a good relationship with his own children that will inspire other fathers to try to be better fathers and have better relations with their own children and so forth and so forth for every other role out there. Now, we live in a very different society, so there's going to be certain reactions to this. There's a couple things people might say. Someone might say, well, hey, my family is already good. Why? Why do I need the government here? Well, if your family's already good, then congratulations. You're one of the very few people who actually have a good family and good harmonious family relations because most of people in the world today do not have good harmonious family relations. But I'm going to ask you this as a rebuttal. Who will your children marry? Whom will your children marry? Because for this generation, for this time being, you might have a wonderful family life. But you have children, they need to find somebody else to marry, and those people that are going to be your daughters-in-laws and sons-in-laws, those people are raised by other families. So then now you'll have to tell me that your whole community is full of good families. And if that's the case, if that is truly the case, then I would say that the governing that is being done must be pretty good in that area, if that is truly the case. And if that's the case, please contact me, tell me where you live so I can live there. And I'm not, I'm not joking. There's really a place with wonderful families everywhere. Everybody is uh, good people within their families. I want to live there too. So let me know. The other thing that might be said is it's not the responsibility of government to tell me how to raise my family. I'm not saying that government is going to give you a set of instructions to raise your family. I'm not saying that they are going to set up a system of regulations to tell you how to raise your family. That's not at all what had happened back then. Because back then, actually, uh, the many of these Confucian dynasties set up the laws to truly respect the family and its own 
familial authority. And so the family was supposed to actually regulate itself and even discipline its own members. That's why in the great learning we have um, the state is well ordered, but each person within their family, each head of the family, regulates their own family. The state does not regulate the family, in other words. The head of the family regulates the, the, the family. So the state is uh, does not get involved in terms of how the family functions directly. It does not set up these laws that say, oh, you have to do this, you have to do that, um, for the most part. Now, of course, there's some sort of, um, at some point, uh, the government does step in. For example, you know, uh, obviously, if the, um, if the son kills the father, then of course the governor steps in at that point. But for, for the most part, uh, it's, it's set up such that the family has largely a lot of autonomy. Furthermore, families back then were a lot more autonomous than families today because the families back then were clans. They were large families. Today, we have what's called the atomistic family, where you have this bare minimum family. And even though you have, of course, your extended family, your cousins and so forth, today you don't really spend time with them. You don't really get to know them. You don't really rely on them. You don't share your finances with them. And because you don't share your finances with them, you don't really have much autonomy. That's different from back then, where uh, an entire clan was connected to each other, not only by coincidence of birth or happenstance of birth, but rather there was actually a, a more financial connection as well. And so I'm going to a lot of detail here. Um, this is something that would be more explored in uh, the history of the Ru, uh, because we're talking about um, history, we're talking about culture, uh, we're talking about how the family used to be um, and why they set it up this way. Um, because how you set it up is different from the philosophical beliefs. So the philosophical beliefs are the abstract ideas, and then how you actually set it up is more of the concrete reality. And so you can have very similar uh, philosophical beliefs and ideas, but in practice, you're doing very different things. So this, this is its own series, uh, requires a lot of discussion in uh, and of itself. So I won't spend too much time there. But my whole point is that no, the government under Confucian uh, political philosophy is not there to tell you exactly how to live your day-to-day -day life within the family. What the government does do instead of using laws and regulations to change everybody's families, is that they establish a culture that encourages harmonious relations within the family. So this is really important because the government should do something, but it also should not get so involved in just punishing individuals for, say, uh, saying the wrong thing or being disrespectful to their parents. You don't want the government to go in, drag these children out, whether they are uh, children uh, or adults. You don't want them to drag sons and daughters out for being disrespectful to the uh, parents. That's overreaching. That's far too much. So how does government establish a culture that encourages harmony within the family. One is done through personal example when your king and your high-ranking persons within societies, such as the you know uh, counts or the knights or uh, etc., when high-ranking persons they themselves are filial, then they set the personal example, which is something that is part of what. Confucius is doing when he himself 
is setting an example. Now, Confucius is a commoner, so his influence only goes so far. But when the king does it, and the noble families, the aristocratic families do it, it goes much, much further. Cultural works are established. So songs that songs, music is very powerful. It really changes our emotions and our sentiments. So if the government um, patronizes musicians to create morally efficacious um, music, then you will have the people becoming more moral. So if you have music, we have a lot of music that talks about our modern romantic understanding of love. And this kind of love is not really uh, healthy. Um, and that's, uh, that's more of a topic perhaps that would uh, be better um, to explain in the Dong and family lecture series. But essentially, the way that we think about love in the modern world is not truly love. It's more like a shopping experience. So you're supposed to go out there and you choose somebody who matches your lifestyle, I guess, or your uh, personal interests. Um, you go out there, you choose somebody who matches you, you know, you check some stuff off, like you're trying on a jacket as a new date, and that's like putting on the clothes in the dressing room. And if it doesn't match, then you just, you just put it back and you leave and you move on. And this doesn't work because human beings bond and every relationship does end up changing you as a person for bad or worse, uh, for good or bad. And uh, furthermore, it's not really love if it's that conditional because everybody will grow old and they'll start to look different. People's interests will change over time. And if you really think about it, most relations, you don't really choose them. So you're supposed to love your parents and you're supposed to love your children, but you didn't choose them. You didn't decide what your children's personalities are going to be like. You didn't choose your own parents. You didn't choose your siblings. You're supposed to still love them. So we have a situation today where we choose two kinds of relationships, the friend now the friend you could always choose. Now, this is true for any any uh, society, uh, including a Confucian one. And in, in, according to Confucianism, you're supposed to choose a friend who is um, somebody who can help you become a better person. But back then, uh, people were raised to be married, and so this would be like any other family relation where you aren't choosing whom to love, you simply love them because they are by fate or destiny put into your life. And that's what love really is. When you love unconditionally, you're not loving the person because he has a nice sense of humor, because she's really pretty, uh, because he has a winning attitude uh, and is really confident etc etc because somebody has money because somebody has a good job uh, these these things can change and they will change and they'll change because of biology and they'll change because society is unstable they'll change oftentimes and that's one reason why I never believed in divorce because of simple quote-unquote incompatibility because then you might as well not actually get married. Uh, the, the meaning of marriage simply disappears. Marriage is a commitment. It's a bond that's supposed to last for your entire life. And so even when things go very badly, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to physically separate. For example, when sp spouse is being violent, you're supposed to physically separate but not remarry. And if you failed at one marriage, you're not going to have a good chance at um, having a good marriage next time because a big part of why it failed is probably because of you. A big part of why it failed is because at the very least, 
you must have chosen the wrong person. But however you decide to explain it to yourself, maybe you felt like you had to marry this person because you had no other choice, um, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter because if you believe in any other family relationship, if you believe that a son should love his father, a daughter should love her mother, a son should love the either parent or a, you know, a child should love the parent, simply because that relationship is important and sacred. If you do believe that, you should believe that for your marriage as well. So that's there's something to understand about uh, relationships. It's a different way of thinking about it. And ultimately, I promise that you will be happier if you change your understanding of what relationships are and what love really is. It's not about compatibility. It's not about finding that perfect jacket or that perfect pair of jeans uh, that you know matches with you. It's, it's not about, uh, you know, these days people are more dedicated to things like their career and their boss. If you look at how they work uh, and how they force themselves to be respectful, they're more dedicated to these things. So if you're interested in this topic, then you want to go over to the Jongin family discussion. Uh, there I'll explain this all into depth, all into detail, answer any kind of what ifs or what about this, what about that, all sorts of questions you might have. And of course, there's always uh, personal lessons uh, if you want to be a uh, direct student of mine, you can go ahead and, and contact um, contact uh, us at rekindleradiance.com. So we have, going back to this point earlier, the government is supposed to establish a culture that encourages harmonious relationships within the family. We talked about personal example. We talked about, uh, we started talking about cultural works. Cultural works will include music and music is very important because it changes our sentimentality. So we have a lot of these love songs, but they treat romantic love as a sort of shopping experience. What we want to have is more songs that move our hearts, that, um, is a, that are about not only the relationship between husband and wife, but also parent and child, um, friends, etc. So we want songs that help us feel the correct way and want to have better relations. The only song that I've really seen in the last hundred years uh, that comes close to this, I think would be probably Cats in the Cradle uh, by Henry, uh, Harry Chapman. This is a pretty good, uh, this is a well, uh, well-written and composed song. Um, it's about um, a father never really putting aside time to spend with his child and uh, but the child uh, but the son ends up growing up anyway and now that he's grown up uh, he's no longer uh, able to have time for his father and so it, it's a song that's very good because it makes you think about how to spend your time what's really precious and to make the most out of uh, your family life uh, and not be so career oriented so we want more songs uh, like this um, this one's a little sentimental, uh, so it's kind of a nostalgic, it's kind of sad, um, it's a little sad, but we can. We, it doesn't have to be like that, it, it, it doesn't have to be mournful, it doesn't have to be sad, it can be optimistic, etc. There can be many, many songs. Uh, the songs that, um, that helped refine the human heart back in the days of Confucius, and in Confucian societies would be the Book of Songs. And you can find a translation of that poem, but we've lost the melodies, unfortunately, because of the Qin Dynasty, uh, which burned a lot of texts. 
so um, today there's an opportunity, and of course that's in, in, in classical Chinese or ancient Chinese. So that's very difficult even for modern day Chinese speakers to uh, go through. So um, there's a need, a great need, um, a dearth of, um, there's a need for music today uh, that can change the people's hearts. So music is one of those cultural works. Today, we can also, um, back then they had stories and they had these kind of, um, sometimes they published picture books. Um, today, of course, we can go far beyond that. Everybody's literate, so you can have uh, commissioned novels. Um, beyond literacy, we also even have film and television. And that could, that could be an incredibly powerful medium. It simply needs to be used for moral purposes. So we don't want to have more of these shows like Friends, and I don't like Friends not because it's uh, not funny or whatever, um, or say even The Office. Uh, the Office I personally liked. I got a lot of uh, out of it. I've seen every episode, but um, you know because uh, even Confucian scholars want to relax from time to time. Um, I didn't binge. I didn't watch this all in you know a month or something, but. Um, these shows like The Office and Friends, the problem with these shows is that the uh, the people in them, they do pretty awful things. And uh, you don't see that they really have to experience the consequences of their actions. If you are like people, the people in Friends, and you've uh, slept around with what must be something like 300 people, um, you're going to be somebody who's not very capable of bonding with other people. And you're not going to be very capable of unconditionally loving the next person because you've already dropped, you've already dumped all these other people before. What's more realistic would be Seinfeld. Seinfeld is pretty good because uh, at the end, you know, these, um, it's, it's recognized that Jerry, George, Elaine, um, and to some extent, uh, to maybe a little bit of a lesser extent, Kramer, uh, these these guys are not virtuous people. They're not happy at the end. They don't know the meaning of love. They're very, uh, pretty superficial people. And in fact, that superficiality always prevents them from simply being honest and saying, okay, I didn't mean this. I'm sorry about this. Um, I really am sorry. And I, I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, instead of doing that, they, they always try to um, evade that conversation and things simply become more awkward and difficult to deal with until it blows up in their faces. So this is it's a very funny show and there's a lot of um, there's a sort of a social karma that um, uh, is, is illustrated within that show. Um, so I don't have a problem with a show like Seinfeld or um, even sunny uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia because uh, you know this is that's a story about uh, kind of similar to Seinfeld um, and I've heard that Seinfeld was a sort of inspiration for sunny in Philadelphia but that show is about scumbags and they are terrible people what can be described as urban trash um, and uh, you know because of the way that they are and uh, um, superficial way of putting it lightly because of the way that they are uh, they perpetually ruin their lives so those in a sense um, are more moral works than a show like friends the office the problem there especially towards the end the very last season is that you have these uh, characters and they've done pretty awful things um, and it's not just angela uh, who is doing some awful things it's also um, you know, even going back to uh, uh, Jim and Pam, uh, Pam is essentially um, carrying on an affair while engaged. And there are a lot of consequences to that. And they unpack that just a little bit. Um, but overall, the, the problem is most people will watch that and think that this is an ideal relationship. And uh, because of the way it unfolded, uh, because of the way that Pam, Pam and Jim got together, I, I don't believe that it will be so um, such smooth sailing. There's a couple that gets together that way are going to have some very profound marital issues. And I don't believe that this show really explored that. Um, so 
Uh, I but you know it's it's a funny show. I enjoyed it, but you if you do watch it, you need to have the awareness that uh, things are not going to turn out so so easily well. All right, so we have cultural works, music, various stories, uh, whether we're talking about novels, uh, television shows, or uh, movies, films. You reform the ceremonies. Um, and so there's two ways to do this. One is maybe require the, the correct kind of ceremony in order to be acknowledged as married. That's possible. I don't know if that's the best thing to do, especially for a society like today's. Um, but uh, if you're highly ranked people, uh, your king and so forth, they do engage in these uh, properly uh, design ceremonies that sim are uh, symbolically show what the proper um, feelings are. So that was already abstract. Let me give you an example. Um, a funeral is there, it, it exists for the people to do a few things, to grieve, to say goodbye, to remember the deceased. And so your funeral should be structured to reflect those things in movement. So for example, um, decorating the, the coffin. Um, that sounds weird, but that's actually what you're doing if you, if you put a rose on top of the coffin. That is a beautiful way to say goodbye. Uh, and so you want to think about these different ceremonies, and we'll talk about ritual propriety all throughout every one of these um, series, every topic, every text, because ritual propriety, Lee, ceremony, uh, etiquette, this is what's unique about Confucian philosophy. You don't really see other people talk about that, say, in the West. The West has a lot of uh, amazing uh, philosophical ideas and texts, uh, but they never, uh, for at least from my understanding, um, never quite spell it out so clearly and explore it so deeply and into so many different directions as the Confucian scholars do. So you can learn a lot, even if you are very well learned in Western philosophy and in ideas of justice and, and politics and so forth, you can learn an incredibly lot from the Rue philosophy when it comes to um, culture and ceremony and etiquette and so forth. So you have a virtuous culture. Um, you have reforming, uh, uh, you, you get that part of this reforming the ceremonies. Um, you honor the exemplary. You put them in high status. You even maybe give them uh, awards. Uh, you know, you recognize their talent or their virtue. Uh, that's you know, such and such person um, is a wonderful son. Such and such person is a uh, wonderful uh, wife. Such and such person, etc. Um, then, if you if you do that, people will know and see that and be inspired to become better. Um, and lastly, you want to establish an economy that allows hard workers to succeed in taking care of their family. So it's not, it's a terrible thing that people are willing to work at normal hours, nine to six maybe, uh, eight to five, but they can't make enough. And so that causes their families to be under a lot of stress, financial stress, emotional anxiety, the parents have a lot of apprehension and they're very high strung. It makes it easier to get into fights and easier to yell because they're constantly on edge. And uh, government should not overtax their people. Government should try to do certain things within reasonable limits like building roads, like defending the borders, uh, government should try to do things um, that is best suited for them, but doesn't overstep. For example, 
Um, a command economy doesn't really work because there are too few people who are making decisions. It's better if you have these merchants and they know what they are paying attention to. So no one businessman knows everything about every other aspect of the economy. Um, so say one CEO has a company that does sports apparel and shoes, then he looks very closely at the market signals for, for such a thing, the supply, the possible supply, this uh, possible demand out there and makes uh, careful decisions there. That's much better than having a government do that. So you want to have a robust economy, uh, one that allows everybody who is willing to work to be able to feed their families. And so those are the ways that government can fulfill its role in making families harmonious. And if people are filial and people are good family persons, they will naturally become good neighbors. They will naturally become law-abiding citizens. They will naturally become industrious in order to feed their family, etc., and so forth. So much of this takes care of itself. There's something else that is good that happens when people are family persons and they understand their role, for example, as king or lord, to be that of a father figure. Then they take what they know and what they feel about their own children and expand from there. Expand from there. And this is one of the great things about Confucian political philosophy is that we're taking, we want to work on the family. And we know we have to do that regardless because that's the fundamental source of human happiness is having a happy family life. It's not career, it's not social status, it is having a happy family life. And so once you have that happy family life, then you can use that, the feelings and the wisdom therein, you can ex take that and expand that to politics, to society. So it's like concentric circles. Like you drop a pebble into um, water and it creates these concentric circles that spread out. Obviously it's most powerful in the center, but it still has an effect outwards. So your kings become more benevolent. Your kings become more willing to sacrifice their happiness for the better of their people. And it's all because of that family metaphor. And the family metaphor is very important. Now, nobody can replace your mother, nobody can replace your father, but um, you can have these father figures where they uh, remind themselves to look at you as if they look at their own children and uh, transfer those sorts of feelings in order to do better. And you as a, say, a student or a subject you can look at that father figure and then transfer over, um, you know, that kind of uh, respect and gratitude towards them. Um, and so that is something that will smooth out relations. That's also in why in the village, um, this of course relates, and this idea relates to what Confucius is saying here. In the village, you're supposed to respect your elders because the elders are a kind of father figure like uh, an, an uncle might be, is, is a kind of father figure. They're going to give you advice, they're going to look out for you, but they also are there to uh, ensure the orderliness and stability and the quiet of the village or the neighborhood. So it's very important um, for practical consequences that people in general respect their elders because the elders are different from the young in the sense that they're experienced, um, they, on average, have greater wisdom, not the same as a scholar who is learned and educated, but on average, if you're talking about the same village or the neighborhood, the elder is going to be much wiser than the young person. And they are less bold. When you're young, you have all this energy. Um, young people are typically combative. Older people are less so, and even though they might be grumpy, they're a little more stable-minded, and so they can 
if uh, you know, if you if you let young people do whatever they want, there's going to be a lot more fights and conflict within that neighborhood or village. So if you have elders being respected, they are the ones who can bring stability and peace toward that village without somebody from the government having to go in, pull up, uh, and start arresting people. You don't want things to end up there. So the law is more of a last resort. The law is like taking a sledgehammer to something. You want to use softer and more subtle methods uh, where people's autonomy and uh, decision-making are still respected and they're not in constant fear of being punished. Okay, one last thing here, um, very quickly. Um, some scholars, when they, uh, some Confucian scholars, you know, hundreds, centuries in the past, when they talk about the analogs, they um, say that perhaps 2.21 is a sort of um, indirect criticism of um, these three aristocratic families in Lu. Um, the G family, particularly, they apparently, according to these uh, scholars, they mistreated their parents and brothers rather harshly um, in their pursuit of power. So I don't, at the moment, have much details on this. I do plan one day uh, to uh, do the series on uh, the history of the root and so I can go into a lot of detail but that that takes a lot of work because going through history is not simply picking up a couple books and reading through it it's not going to the Wikipedia article and reading through it that's not responsible there's a lot of sources history is very difficult to know really what happened and what is conjecture and what is poor scholarship, what is poor research, let me put it that, uh, that way, what is poor academics. And so when I look into history, I spend a lot of time. I look at many different sources, primary sources, secondary sources. I don't rely on the textbook, and I don't rely on an encyclopedia. Um, and then I also have to look like, uh, I have to look and think like a sociologist. I have to look and say, okay, is this characterization fair? Or is there something going on that we're not really seeing because we lived according to modern perspectives and modern values? It's very difficult, very time intensive. A period of 30 years, a period of one person's lifetime involves so much work. Um, and so I would love to do this. Um, I would greatly like to do this full time. Um, but um, as as things are, um, I don't have the financial opportunity to do to devote myself to this full time. I would like to. I use the word love. I um, generally try not to use that unless I'm talking about uh, actual persons. Um, but it came out here because this is how much I want. Um, I would be what we call passionate for this project. Um, so. If you would like to um, help me on this road, uh, you know there is that um, support us uh, page uh, on the upper right. If you go to rekindleradius.com on the upper right, you can go click on that. Um, it's something that I hope to do uh, within my lifetime, but it is it is a lot of work and a lot a lot of hours uh, that would have to be devoted to uh, such a project. Um, but uh, hopefully I can do that um, uh, one day and be able to finish it. So let's, let's sum up 2.21. Essentially, a primary responsible, responsibility of government is to create a harmonious society and that the, fund, the foundation of a harmonious society are harmonious families. And so rather than running for office, Rather than debating with all these people, um, strangers online, about random political questions, the best thing for you to do is 
to do your best be jong in your family relations it doesn't always mean unfortunately that you will end up having a good relationship with such and such person but from your end make sure you're doing the right thing make sure you're doing the moral thing um, and then from there you can have good effects on the rest of society so that's what confucius is doing here he's recognizing that a harmonious society is the responsibility of government the primary responsibility of government and he does recognize that harmonious families is essential to that and so by being a good being himself being filial and being good to his family members he is actually carrying out the work of government.